So I thought I'd start with a few sort of introductory comments about, um, about this particular topic and its relevance to, um, to actuarial science, not to preempt the, uh, the illustrious group of speakers that we, that we have here. Um, I thought it was quite interesting that um, the UN Weather Agency told us last week that 2016 is set to break the record for the hottest year since measurements began in the 19th century. And the World Meteorological Organization has reported the date up to October shows that global averages are up 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial levels. Of course, last year at the uh, COP21 conference in, in Paris, that threshold was set at, at 2 degrees. Um, but certainly there's um, some evidence that 17, 16 of the last 17 hottest years this have occurred in the century. So, um, so things are of concern. There is, of course, a little bit of good news as well. The Earth Science Data Journal has recently published findings that global carbon emissions have, have stabilized while economies, of course, have continued to grow. Recently, last week, we had COP22 in Marrakesh, but I think it was more a collective holding of breath, um, observing the management change on the other side of the Atlantic and waiting to see what's going to, what's going to happen there. But I think what's important for us to be thinking about today is the actuarial implications of all of this. I mean, we've seen all this debate around climate change assertions. Rob and I have had some interesting discussions in the corridors at, um, at WITS. And there was an interesting letter, actually, in a, a series of letters in the Actuary uh, magazine recently, and there's Dr. Ed Tridger, FIA, who put it quite well. He said the unknowableness, which is quite a nice word, the unknowableness of climate changes and whether the cause of these trends is anthropogenic, which I looked up, as in affecting humanity, largely doesn't matter because any reasonable person would admit that climate change can happen and this can have a material impact on our work over the next 20, 30 years. So that's what we need to think about, things that can happen. That's our job. So our task is to ensure that risk management frameworks are in place to deal with these future risks. Modeling risk, whether it's hurricanes, market volatility, epidemics due to climate change, this is what we do. So I don't think we should be getting bogged down in the provability of science, but we certainly need to busy ourselves with what we know about, which is modeling the possibility. So Sam is going to start with outlining some of the, the major um, international players in this, in this field, um, in the environment of, um, of climate change and what the IAA, the International Actuarial Association, is attempting to do in terms of um, the work on, uh, on climate change and the, the role of actuaries um, in, in climate change. Rob is going to talk about some of the new perspectives on economics, um, particularly ecological um, economics and how that relates to the environment and to society and, um, and to the economy. And, um, and then Taran, who presented a paper um, at the 2014 Convention on, uh, on Sustainability, um, is going to, to dig a little bit deeper into that, um, into that field for us. So I think they're going to juggle a little bit between themselves, starting with, um, with Sam. You'll be able to, to read the um, speaker biographies. I'm not going to go through all of that detail because I think we'd rather get into the, into the meat of the content in your, on your app or in your, in your um, handouts. But Sam, we're really privileged that you are joining our convention um, as, a, as an illustrious international guest, and, uh, and we look forward to your remarks. Thanks very much, Roseanne. Um, uh, I, I feel very privileged by being here. 
Uh, this is my fourth time speaking in Cape Town, so I, I appreciate this opportunity. This is the first time they've spoken on climate change and the environment, though. So get, getting right to it. I'm going to be just to have a brief introduction on who's talking about the environment. Well, being an American, it's an, I, I won't dwell, delve too much into this topic, but from an actual perspective, <laughs> I'm, um, I'm going to be covering three, three brief items. Uh, first, uh, the International Actual Association, what it's doing, uh, what uh, the United Nations is doing, and what others, other supranational organizations. The IAA. The IAA four years ago formed a um, formed a uh, resources and environment working group. Um, it's it reports to the scientific committee, the IAA, and has become increasingly active in the supranational field. It relates to a number of supranational organizations, and which I'll just go through and list very quickly. Um, but we also deal and relate to our local national associations. Uh, there are several organizations which have corresponding committees, and we encourage uh, every member association to, be get, to get more focused and more involved in this area. Uh, it's important not only to actuaries as a profession, uh, but also as actuaries, as individuals. And if I can get, as, as I talk to a couple of people, as it's going in, getting the arrows right is very crucial. <laughs> the United Nations, typically United Nations is thought of as an organization which uh, is a talking shop and doesn't do anything. Well, this is one of the few exceptional areas where the action is really at the United Nations level. Uh, and and it's, it's sort of an, uh, maybe a disjoint organization. I'll just go through it very quickly uh, and pointing out where the, the IAA has been active and will hopefully get more active. The General Assembly uh, uh, has several, many uh, organizations reporting, entities reporting to it. One of them is the United Nations Environment Program uh, in it. Uh, and under that organization is the Finance Initiative, and under it is the Principles of Sound, uh, uh, of sound Insurance, um, the PSI. Uh, the IA is a, is a supporting institution of that organization, uh, and it holds regular meetings and particularly delves into the topic area of the role of insurance in climate change. Uh, most of the areas of interest has been in the property and casualty general insurance area side. Uh, and we're hoping to also try to energize that group to look at both life and health as well. Uh, they are partnering, or the UNEP is partnering with the World Meteorological Organization, the WMO. You can go crazy with these mnemonics. Uh, and, and jointly, they... Uh, have reported to the inter Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and that's the, meet the whose meeting was last week in Marrakesh. Uh, separately, there is a Council of Parties, which is in, in UN parlance is countries, uh, for which there is reports to that Council of Parties, the United Nations Framework 
Con Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC. Um, the uh, IA is, uh, uh, I think they have a nine-month process to become a supporting institution, and we're in the middle of that nine-month process. So we'll be able to be supported in, and participate much more closely in that. Uh, also, I didn't mention the Warsaw International Mechanism for Losses and Damages. I attended a meeting on and that. That's an area that's looking at the impacts of climate change on vulnerable populations, which I will be talking to throughout this discussion. There's a number of other organizations in terms of, of, uh, of financial disclosures of corporations. Uh, the Financial Stability Board has formed a task force on financial disclosures. They've already had one exposure draft. They'll be coming out with another one or the final report, we're not certain, uh, next month. Uh, so if you're interested in that area, uh, that's coming up shortly. The OECD and an innumerable number of other organizations are involved. With that, uh, I'll turn it over to Ron. Thanks, Sam, and good morning, ladies and gentlemen. The expression new economics um, has been adopted to refer to various to various branches of economics that question the paradigm of the neoclassical economics that our students learn at most universities. In particular, ecological economics treats the interdependence and co-evolution of human economies and natural ecosystems over time and space. It's, it's been informed not only by ecology, but also by social and institutional economics. Social economics is the study of how econ economics affects people, and institutional economics studies the way in which firms, states, and social norms influence economic behavior. Uh, both of these disciplines have been embraced by ecological economics. In our work in the IAA, we have focused mainly on ecological economics. We've also been interested, though, in the theory of credit, which relates to issues with the way in which banks create money. I'm going to focus largely on ecolo ecological economics, which deals with the relationship between the environment, society, and the economy. I'll be contrasting that with environmental economics, whereas ecological economics treats the human society and its economy as part of the environment. Environmental economics, which is part of neoclassical economics, treats the environment and society as part of the economy. Standard neoclassical environmental economics depicts the economy as a closed system. Labor and capital come from households to firms in exchange for dollars. There. And um, I think it's easier if I don't use this pointer, quite frankly. Um, uh, goods and services come from firms to households in exchange for dollars, and all of this happens competitively through uh, markets of varying efficiency. Ecological economics sees the economy as embedded in a natural environment. It draws so-called natural resources from a finite environment, and it deposits wastes and effluents into the, that environment. The physical conservation of mass means that we take out of the earth 
what we dump back into it. The point of ecological economics is that classical economics was fine when the earth was a great empty place, but now it's not. You can have an environment without human society. You can have human society without a market economy. But you can't have human society without an environment. And you can't have an economy without human society. The economy is a subset of humanity. And humanity is a subset of the environment. In fact, the environment would do very well without humankind or our economy. Whereas environmental economics focuses on efficiency, ecological economics focuses on sustainability. Sustainability of the environment, of society, and of the economy, in that order. This chart shows environmental economics analysis of how the optimal amount of pollution should be determined in order to achieve optimal efficiency. This, in other words, is the neoclassical economics perspective. For each producer, the marginal control cost to the producer must be equal to the marginal damage cost, not only to the producer, but also to society and the environment. But notice that the costs are determined in dollars. That presupposes that the well-being of society and the environment can be measured in dollars. Environmental economists are treating this as an economic problem. This is reductionist. In the first place, it treats the environment as part of the economy. The earth is there purely for the benefit of humans. It has no intrinsic value. And in the second place, it treats human well-being as measurable in, in dollars. I am nothing but a consumer. This is standard neoclassical efficiency. It optimizes the monetary costs and benefits of pollution control. The ecological economists ask not merely whether the effects on the environment are efficient, but whether they are sustainable. The ecological economist considers the environment to determine whether the environmental effects are sustainable. If not, the emissions and therefore the output must be reduced. No, says the environmental economist, all you need to ensure is efficiency. If natural capital and other forms of capital are mutually substitutable, then the output will be sustainable. The ecological economist is dumbfounded. How can you assume, he asks, that the environment is expendable, substitutable? Perhaps the environmental economist was right in an empty world where the environment could be assumed to be able to provide all our needs and absorb all our wastes. Today, a different paradigm is required. To start with, we must determine the maximum pollution extraneously from the economy. That is an ecological question, not an economic question. We need to know what pollution is ecologically sustainable. That is represented here by the purple line. If it's less than the efficient quantity, then economic efficiency is unsustainable. Torren will be speaking more about sustainability. Here's another way of looking at the problem. This identity helps us to analyze the environmental effects of human economic activity into three components. Let's assume that the population will continue to grow for some time and then remain constant. Let's also assume that consumption per head of population will continue to grow at a moderate rate forever. 
This means that if we must reduce the effect of human activities on the earth, then we must reduce the environmental effect of consumption at a greater rate than the combined increase in population growth and per capita consumption. Neoclassical economists put their hope in technology to do this. To my mind, that's like calculating embedded values for products that have not yet even been designed. No doubt technological improvements will help, but the macroeconomists will have what is called a precautionary principle. It requires decision-makers to avoid actions or policies that will cause harm to the public or the environment. Maybe actuaries take that principle more seriously than most macroeconomists. The limits to growth in consumption will be determined by environmental sustainability of human economic activity and by future technological improvement. Another point made by ecological econ economists, and accepted to some degree by environmental... This thing doesn't seem to be... A, oh, there we go. Uh, yeah. Another point made by ecological economists, and accepted to some degree by environmental economists, is that GDP is a bad measure of welfare. Not only does it not allow for externalities, it fails to recognize that the most valued things in life are things that money can't buy, like human love and human rights and human capabilities. I'm not a great fan uh, either of the ecological footprint or of the Human Development Index. The ecological footprint measures the area of product productive land required to maintain current economic activities, and the HDI is a mean of measures of education, life expectancy at birth, and gross national income per capita. But for all their faults, they seem to be telling us something important here. What we need is for the poor countries' levels of well-being to improve, and the rich countries' ecological footprint, particularly their carbon footprint, to be reduced. We tend to think that it's only the poor countries that need sustainable development. They're developing countries, after all. But what we see here is that the poor countries need to sustain their development, and the rich countries need to develop their sustainability. GDP also fails to measure inequality. It aggregates everything into a meaningless mean. The Gini coefficient is a measure of inequality. It's also not an ideal measure, but it is at least indicative of inequality. South Africa has one of the worst Gini coefficients in the world. But the world Gini coefficient is even worse than South Africa's. That may seem odd. But most of the inequality is between countries, not within them. And that's what's been getting worse. The problem is that a rising tide of GDP doesn't necessarily lift all boats. So it's not a good measure of human well-being. And there are other problems with the use of GDP as a measure of well-being. Technology is increasingly favorable, uh, um, favoring capital over labor. In the techno-rich countries, that's great. People can upskill and become more efficient. But in the techno-poor countries, people can't do that. They can't catch up. In effect, the rich countries are exporting the unemployment created by capitalization of world industry to, their poor, to the poor countries. And this is socially unsustainable. Worldwide, we now need fewer workers to produce our goods. But worldwide, we still have more and more mouths to feed. How do we distribute wealth? 
75% youth unemployment in Soweto is a recipe for disaster. Another problem is that GDP measures wants, not needs. It disregards the decreasing marginal utility of consumption beyond people's needs. A year's supply of bread is more valuable to a poor woman trying to make her family's ends meet than a bottle of champagne. But the GDP values the champagne according to its quantity and its price. The macroeconomic policy should focus on needs, not on unnecessary wants or what Max Neef refers to as pseudo-satisfiers. Marketing creates demand. Neoclassical economics presupposes that consumers have rational desires and negotiate prices on, an, on even playing fields with competitive producers. They don't. One of the problems with environmental economics is that it treats the environment as nothing but a set of resources for the economy. So now let's turn to resources. When people talk about environmental, quote, resources, they generally divide them into two, non-renewable and renewable resources. Ekin suggests there are three, non-renewable, conditionally renewable, and inexhaustible. You will notice that I've put resources and services in quotes. The biosphere is more than just a resource and a source of services. It's not just a subset of the economy. Whilst it's necessary to think about the resources and services we need from the environment, we must continue to remind ourselves that humankind is just a subset of the biosphere. To treat the biosphere as our property is reductionist. It is arrogant, economistic, and anthropocentric. We are stewards of the biosphere, not just for the sake of our grandchildren. My granddaughter is getting married next month. Uh, <laughs> so I have an interest in the perpetuation of my family, but for its own sake. Non-renewable resources include fossil fuels, uranium, carbon compounds such as calcium carbonate, other minerals used as constituents, parts of manufactured goods, or as fertilizers for agriculture, and so on. At present rates of consumption, most of our reserves, including uranium, will only last a few generations. Of course, new reserves will be found but how much more will be found is still unknown, and the cost of extraction is also unknown. Again, we must follow the precautionary principle. Even without new reserves, stocks will last longer than this diagram suggests. As resources become scarcer and extraction costs become greater, prices will increase and consumption will decrease, but that's little comfort. The limits to non-renewable resources are limits to the material growth of the economy. In fact, because of the need to achieve sustainability, much of the world's fossil fuel reserves will never be able to be used. The burning of fossil fuels cannot continue at current rates. This means that fossil fuel producers and their shareholders are going to have to write down the, value, the values of their reserves in their balance sheets. These are called stranded assets. Their exploration will have turned out to be wasted effort. Conditionally renewable resources are part of the biosphere, which may be depleted through overuse, like fish populations, natural forests, fertile soil. The supply of these resources is limited, and we need to use them sustainably, not just efficiently. Also, deforestation not only robs the biosphere of biodiversity and indigenous biomass, it also exacerbates climate change. Land use change must be managed sustainably. Resources 
are not confined to what we take out of the biosphere. In fact, environmental services including the include the disposal of waste generated by human activity. Limits to the sustainable use of conditionally renewable resources are also limits to material growth. Environmental economists impute prices to what they call, quote, natural capital, like trees. They use measures like people's willingness to pay for preservation of their favorite trees. So say each of the world's 7.5 billion people has 12 favorite trees for which he or she would pay 100 rands each. And that means the value of the world's trees is 9 trillion rands. In fact, there are about 3 trillion trees in the world. But people don't care about most of them. Actually, we couldn't do without them. Life on Earth would cease without the photosynthesis provided by trees and other plants. According to the World Bank, only 5% of the world's capital is natural capital. On the other hand, a work of a group of ecological economists with Costanza et al. in 1997 suggests that the value of the goods and services provided by the Earth's biosphere is at least 33 US trillion dollars a year. That's 1.8 times the gross world product. And Costanza et al. acknowledge that the aggregate value of the biosphere is actually infinite. You could throw all the money in the world at it, but you still couldn't replace it. Marginal prices are fine for the market, but the biosphere is not for sale. Fishing resources are also being used unsustainably. A major effect of climate change is acidification, which is severely affecting coral reefs and fish populations. This is going to reduce sustainable fishing levels even further. The only major source of inexhaustible energy is the sun. Renewable is a misnomer. Solar energy doesn't get renewed, it just keeps coming. Solar energy comes direct from solar heating and photovoltaics and indirectly from wind and hydroelectric power. The other sources include geothermal, tidal, micro, uh, marine current energy. Climate change makes the shift to inexhaustible energy sources imperative. So, in summary, Here's where ecological economics uh, says to economics, one, I beg to differ. Thanks, Rob. So I'm going to be talking about sustainability and the purpose of, I don't even think I actually speak about climate change at all, um, but the purpose of, of my part of the, of the uh, presentation is to provide some clarity on what is actually meant by sustainability and why it's actually necessary to measure sustainability and what research needs to be done going forward so that we can actually establish these measures. Now, I do recognize that the effects of unsustainability will have severe effects or negative effects on the actuarial profession, but um, it's not my purpose to provide solutions to the problems that we're faced because, as Joan mentioned earlier on, um, 
the problem of unsustainability is a global one. And we, as the actuarial profession, have a role to play in providing solutions to this problem. So, what is sustainability? Let's start with unsustainability, because it's probably more familiar to us. I mean, we see the statistics on TV, we've watched a few documentaries, um, but I'm not going to bore you with any statistics or scare you with any doomsday scenarios, because um, one of the major questions facing humankind is whether human activity is actually sustainable. Now, following on from the ecological economics that Rob spoke about, we can answer this question with a resounding no. However, there are world leaders that will actually answer this question with a resounding yes. But let's say the answer is no. <laughs> <laughs> Yet despite the growing concern about unsustainability, there is actually little or no consensus on what it actually means. The problem is actually not the definition of sustainability. I mean, it's quite clearly defined in the dictionary. If you open up your Oxford Dictionary, which most of us have, you'd find that definition of sustainability. The problem actually comes in when trying to determine what it actually means. And the suspects for causing the confusion are the experts in environmental sustainability or social sustainability, for example. And effectively, there are two contexts of sustainability. The first context is the domain that is being threatened. So it is, is it the environment? Is it the society? Is it the economy? And the other domain refers to the activities that are being threatened. So part of the confusion comes in where parts of the literature will refer to only one domain and completely ignore the effects that are actually having and the activities that are actually having an effect on the domain, or they ignore um, or they take into account effects and ignore one of the other domains. So there's actually no uh, meaning of sustainability that actually wholly captures these two main contexts of sustainability. But what we can see is that from the literature, there are some common themes to help us understand what is actually meant by sustainability. Um, the first, I'll get this thing I skipped. First is there are three domains, the environmental, uh, okay. the environmental, so maybe it doesn't want me to speak on this slide. <laughs> environmental, social, and economic sustainability. So these are related to the three domains of sustainability. Another common theme that arises relates to entities, companies, governments being held accountable for the effect that they have on the environment, society, and the economy. A third theme that comes, up, comes out is that these effects, uh, we need to take a long-term view on these effects. So for example, um, it can take many years to reverse the damage that's been done by just one year's activities. And finally, that these effects need to take a global view. So for example, if you have an entity that um, emits one millionth of global greenhouse gas emissions, then that entity needs to be held responsible for one millionth of that effect. Um, but even looking at these common themes, we still actually don't know what it means. I don't know if you'll know. Ah. It advances more rapidly there than 
Okay. So a good place to start is to look at um, probably the most widely used definition of sustainable development, which is the Brundtland Report's definition. It um, is the meeting the needs of the present generation without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Now, this definition has some good things to it. Um, it assumes that in looking at sustainability that we need to take a long-term view, and it also includes the social domain. But there are some bad things about this definition. So it is anthropocentric. We've heard this term before, <clears throat> which means that it regards humankind as the central element of existence. And as Rob pointed out, we are meant to be stewards of the biosphere, not just for the sake of, in my case, children and grandchildren, um, but for its own sake. In addition, this is actually a definition of sustainable development and not sustainability. And what we actually see is that these two terms are uh, used interchangeably, but they actually have completely different meanings. So the term sustainable development has emerged as a recognition that economic development needs to be environmentally sustainable. And because of the history of the notion of development, the focus of sustainable development tends to be on poor or developing countries, whereas issues of sustainability relates to all countries. It is a global issue. And as Rob put it, poor countries need to sustain their development and rich countries need to develop their sustainability. Also, because the focus is on uh, your poor developing countries, it assumes that only developing governments should actually be held accountable for their um, effects. And not all governments and certainly not all entities should be held accountable. And so it therefore shifts the focus from a global view to a developing country view. So there's some issues with this widely used uh, definition. Another one or another expression used to refer to sustainability is sustainability performance. Now, Rob calls this a mindless concatenation of concepts. I could not have said it better myself um, because sustainability is actually a binary concept. Something is either sustainable or it's not sustainable, whereas performance is a continuous concept. Um, it's quite easy to determine whether one company's performance in a given year is better or worse than a previous year. So I've only really given you two examples of how sustainability is actually referred to. There are hundreds out there. Um, and what we actually find is that the common theme that runs through these definitions um, is that there's a very vague commitment um, to accountability, very vague commitment to the environmental and social domains. So we feel um, that a definition or, or, or that captures the meaning of sustainability is this. So what do we mean by sustainability? The global economic system that is the sum total of human economic activity is taken to be sustainable if, assuming its indefinite continuance, the effects of that activity will enable the environment, human society, and the economic system itself to attain and maintain a specified state of well-being in the world. So this effectively captures the, the common themes that we see in sustainability literature. It also captures the two contexts of sustainability, the domain that's being threatened and the activities that are actually threatening the domain. And it actually captures the dictionary definition of sustainability, of attaining and maintaining a specified state. So you might... Oh. 
I see your problem. <laughs> What's there is not there. Okay, now it is. So you might ask, um, why do we actually need to measure sustainability? I mean, we have indices, we have corporate social responsibility strategies, we have reporting guidelines, we have all of this to help us tell us whether we're doing a good job or doing a bad job of addressing um, unsustainability. But let me ask you this. How do you determine whether your company or whether a specific activity of your company is sustainable or not? So again, as I said, we have indices, we even have climate change projections that help us make this call. But we actually need measures of environmental, social, and economic sustainability to determine how far away we are from actually attaining and maintaining that specific state that I spoke about in the definition. We actually don't have a yardstick to measure how bad the situation really is. We just know that it's bad. Um, we also need a measurement, we also need to measure sustainability so that we know who the main culprits are. It will assist us in identifying who the main contributors to the problem um, is. Um, for some of the major players, they might not want to actually think that there is a, a problem. It helps with comparability. So yesterday in preparing to fly to Cape Town, I actually had a look at my e-ticket. And it said that my flight from Johannesburg to Cape Town, the carbon emissions of the airline um, is 202.58 kilograms. I'm sure you've seen this on your e-tickets as well. And for the flight back to Johannesburg from Cape Town, the carbon emissions of the airline is higher than that, 211.79 kgs. And I thought to myself, is it more environmentally harmful for me to fly back to Johannesburg? Perhaps I should stay in Cape Town. <laughs> but it showed me that it's actually a meaningless figure to have on the e-ticket. It actually didn't tell me which was worse off, me flying here or me flying there. And what you find is that a lot of these reports are littered with these figures, and there is no standardized way of determining whether one company's activities have led to a greater adverse environmental effect or social effect than others. And companies manipulate the system to make themselves look way better because of this point, that there is no standardization. One way to get around this is to measure the ultimate effects of uh, a company's activities. So for example, an ultimate effect of carbon emissions would be loss of biodiversity. And once you have a single value against the ultimate effect relating to an environmental effect, you can now uh, compare which, company has has, which company's activities have led to um, a greater adverse effect. I'll come back to accountability and responsibility later on. Okay. What we see, though, is that current measures are actually not telling the full story. So there are a plethora of measures of sustainability. Today I'm just going to focus on one example, environmental indicators. So in 1992, the United Nations Conference on Environment and Development posed the challenge to develop a concept of indicators for sustainable development. So they were basically making a call to go forth and create indicators. And as a result, there's a proliferation of indicators. There are thousands of environmental and social indicators that exist. You can Google it, it's true. Um, 
And so they are a very pervasive feature of all, feature, of all aspects of sustainable, sustainability po policies. So consider the most widely used environmental indicators or indicator framework, which is the Global Reporting Initiatives um, indicators. And it's actually very widely used in South Africa as well. So all companies listed on the JSC are required by the King 3 report to report on environmental effects and social effects in addition to their financial reports. And most companies actually use the GRI framework. So for example, one of the indicators in the GRI framework would be greenhouse gas emissions. <clears throat> and again, it's, it's difficult to actually compare because there is no standardization with these indicators. Um, there's no single value that tells us the effect that a company actually has had on the environment. It's also very much open to manipulation because the company can actually choose what they put into their report. And obviously they don't really want to put things in there that make them look bad. In fact, I was at a GRI forum about two years ago and um, the people present were very concerned about, well, they asked questions about uh, what indicators to put into the report, the deadline for the report, how long the report should be, who actually sees the report, and there was so much fuss about this report. Um, it just seemed like this tick box that needed to be ticked. And at the end of the forum, I put up my hand and asked the question, so actually, how do you know whether the company that you're producing this report for has had a bad or good environmental effect? And the lady that was facilitating just was dumbfounded. She didn't actually have an answer because I wasn't really focused on, on filling out the report. Um, the other issue is that, I mean, the SRI index is a case in point. I mean, if you look at the constituents in the JSC SRI index, uh, I mean, there are some companies in there which, you know, you're a bit skeptical whether they should actually be in there based on their environmental effects. And also these indicators fo focus on current rates. You actually can't use current rates to, as a predictor for future rates because they're not constant. And if you're assuming that they're, they're constant, you're assuming that um, effects are linear. Now, this year's activities, for example, will have lagged effects, will have long-term effects, and future effects of future business will have its own effects. And none of these are linear. So although we can measure historical performance, Sustainability is about the future, so we actually need models of the future to assess the sustainability of business as usual or business as planned. So in summary, <clears throat> bringing together the meaning of sustainability versus the fact that current measures are not actually showing us the big picture, what are we looking for in a measure of sustainability? So what is, what is our target? Um, in terms of uh, an ideal measure. So this measure should actually um, encompass all three domains, environmental, social, and economic. It should allow for the ultimate outcome, so the ultimate effects of an entity's activities, so that we can compare the effects between, between entities, between governments. It also needs to be meaningful um, and additive, not additive across the three domains, so not adding the environmental, social, and economic, but additive within a domain um, and additive across entities so that we can determine global sustainability, and it can be disaggregated. So within each domain, uh, we can hone in onto individual components of each domain to see where the problems are and to assess the problems so that we can manage it going forward.
Okay. Past, present, future. So in terms of uh, measuring the effects of an entity's activities, we can look at it in terms of past, present, and future. So for example, this year's reporting, activity, uh, re reporting year, we can measure the effects of an entity's activities during this year on the environment, society, and on the economy, as at the end of this period. And essentially, we'd be held accountable, or entity would be held accountable for immediate effects. So we're being held accountable for what we've done in this year. But next year, the activities of this year would have an effect next year and in future years. Okay? So then we can measure the effects of the activities um, during this reporting period at future time horizons. And so we effectively have accountability for the past and accountability... Uh, and accountability for the present. And who are we being accountable to? We're being accountable to stakeholders. And by measuring these effects, they can see, our stakeholders can see what was done badly in the past year, and then they can plan future business responsibly. Business as planned will therefore diverge from business as usual. And going forward, we can determine the effects um, during future years at subsequent time horizons so that we can be responsible for the future and responsible for what we, will be go what we are going to be doing in the future. So for in terms of the research that needs to be done going forward to establish such measures, we need the criteria for the, spe for the specification of measures. So for example, the criteria that it needs to be additive um, or disaggregable. <laughs> Um, time series models need to be developed because although we can measure historical performance, we need models of the future to determine um, future sustainability. As well as the explanatory variables for each domain needs to be def defined and then the formulation of the triple bottom line, which is effectively the environmental bottom line, social bottom line, and economic bottom line needs to be formulated. So as I said earlier, we recognize that um, the effects of unsustainability will be felt by the actuarial profession. But we also recognize that the problem of unsustainability is a global one. And actuaries are in a position to play a role to provide the solution. We can actually use our skill sets to address the new problems that we will face, both in our profession and both at a global unsustainability level and the, some of the effects that it will have on your profession. So for example, we're quite used to financial actuarial modeling. Um, our actuarial modeling will need to be extended to the three domains, so into the environmental and social domain, which is a, a, a quite a challenge. The advice given will need to be extended to other two domains, and we're already seeing that uh, requirements to provide advice on climate change, for example. The Jones et al. paper, which actually focused on the effects of resource constraints on the actuarial profession, um, made a call for actuaries that we should urgently seek to understand the implications in that case of resource constraints for their advice, assumptions, and models. And this call can be extended to unsustainability. And as we've already heard, as Sam has mentioned earlier, that there is work being done in the actuarial profession. But it is early days to actually determine 
how these effects would be translated into our everyday job. We need to understand the bigger problem first. Thank you. Glad this, this is two sided. That's good. I'll turn my our attention the next uh, or the last part of the session on two research projects that are be currently being conducted uh, by the International Actuarial Association and by the Society of Actuaries. Uh, first uh, topic is mortality. Mortality is affected by climate change or will be affected by climate change. Uh, the project uh, that, I'll be uh, that I'll be covering is a, a, a brief background to, the, to this report, um, some description of some direct effects of climate change, some of the other indirect effects, uh, as well as the potential mortality consequences, particularly focusing on vulnerable populations. This is a report that uh, I've been spearheading. It's, it's a, a product of the Resources and Environment Working Group of the IEA in conjunction with Paul's Mortality Working Group. Uh, it's a work in progress, uh, but it, the report is expected to come out with, uh, in the first half of 2017. I think that this is an important aspect, often overlooked uh, in the analysis of climate change. Typically, at least in the insurance space, uh, the property effects of climate change is covered. Second, uh, second area that's covered is, is the health aspect. Uh, and last, and relative to the uh, actuarial uh, areas of interest, is mortality. This is, that's what, what I'll be covering here. If I've got it right. Okay, good. Um, Direct effects of climate change. We all, all know a little bit about uh, greenhouse gases, the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, the effect on climate. The, the general effects that, that, uh, that, are, that we are, should be uh, um, directly relating to is, first, the increased level and variability in temperature, which includes rainfall and humidity. The second aspect is the increase in volatility in natural climate events such as storms, floods, hurricanes, and etc. The third, which is all sometimes overlooked, are referred to as slow onset conditions. These are re really long-term in effect and may not occur for decades, um, possibly in centuries. And, and certain aspects are sea level and desertification. And that's not for deserts but in terms of, of areas in the world where uh, areas will be uh, turned into deserts. The one aspect that you're, you, you're quickly aware of when you study this is that, in fact, in, it affects different areas of the world differently. Uh, that is, we're all not going to have an increase of one degree or three degrees or eight degrees centigrade. It's going to be a very mixed picture from around the world. 
this is uh, talking about what are the various effects on human health. This covers both health and, and life and mortality. So going around this little slide, first of all, covering um, the more extreme or the rising temperatures, some of the effects of that are severe weather and extreme heat. Heat leads to heat-related illnesses and disease and cardiovascular conditions. Uh, these are seen um, in terms of heat stresses. Um, they, are, they generally affect those who are of older age. I won't define what older age is. Um, the, the, but in fact, those who are vulnerable to heat-related diseases and conditions. Second are injuries, fatalities, and mental health impacts. I don't want to minimize those mental health impacts. Once, you're, once you've got stress, extreme stress, uh, that can lead to mental deterioration, etc. a fear of, of severe weather. The third area, which is covering under more extreme weather conditions, as opposed to just temperature, are asthma, cardiovascular disease, and air pollution. This is the area that we see certainly now in, in China and India uh, that's been making the press in the last couple of weeks, uh, the extreme uh, air pollution in, uh, in Delhi. This is only going to be exacerbated in the future by future climate change. There have been estimates, one, one estimate that's been produced in the last uh, um, a couple of weeks uh, for COP22 uh, is an estimate of by 2050, there may be 6.6 .6 million deaths a year caused by air pollution. That's a shocking number. To me, it certainly is. Hopefully to most other people. Um, also, there's changes in vector ecology. And these cover a wide range of diseases uh, and significantly that affects uh, uh, areas in, in Africa. That's including uh, malaria, dengue fever, encephalitis, so on and so on and so on. Uh, there's estimates that dengue alone in the, near, in, the, in the future, 2030 or 2050, various estimates have developed something in the order of 60,000 lives a year in terms of deaths. Moving to, to rising sea levels, uh, allergens, uh, these respiratory allergies and asthma, you think of that as being um, health-related, in other words, increase the costs of care, costs of health care, but also uh, if, if people are exposed enough to that, uh, it can also lead to deaths. Um, moving down here, water quality impacts, uh, you've got the typical ones that I can't even pronounce. Um, but water and food supply, you've got malnutrition, um, and, and, and attributed um, malnutrition has, uh, is one estimate is 50,000 lives that, uh, that it will cost the world a year uh, by the year 2050. Uh, and um, in terms of diarrheal disease, uh, up to a million. In the environmental degradation, um, this is an area that's the, that raises the question of attribution. How much is climate change causing some of these conditions? We've seen some studies that have pointed to the situation in Syria, for example, as being significantly as a result of climate change, lack of water, and therefore has led a lot to a lot of the, of the, uh, of, 
of the problems there. How much of that is caused by climate change, uh, I wouldn't want to guess, but that certainly is one contributing factor. These are two slides that uh, have, are uh, uh, scenarios that have been developed in the fifth, uh, fifth um, IPCC report that's available on the website. Um, there is one on the left, which is the scenario of significant in improvements, um, of very substantial mitigations rapidly put into place in the, in the near future in terms of the spread of the effects of climate change. On the right, however, is one with little change. In other words, if, if, if the Paris Agreement did, does not go into effect and it's almost like business as usual, the color, color slides shows, shows where um, or the, uh, the effects of some of these uh, of the scenarios. And I think it's useful in any actual analysis of this is to look at these scenarios. Uh, they've developed, been developed uh, in terms of which one is going to happen will depend on many, many factors, one of which is uh, human behavior changes and governmental changes as well. When you look at these, at the potential uh, mortality consequences, they aren't all bad. Some areas of the world, there is going to be improved crop conditions. When you, when you have a warmer condition in some areas, you improve agriculture agricultural performance. So certain areas will benefit from climate change. But there's the adverse effects. And I won't go into all of them because we don't have really have time, but from diarrheal effects, from, from spreads of, of, of uh, easy, more easily spread of mosquito-related diseases, uh, desertific desertification, uh, air pollution, um, bad stuff, in other words. But in terms of, of, the, of the human efforts to counter climate change, in terms of some of the mitigation factors can improve mortality as well. And one example is the solar panels. This could imply a smaller production of coal, for example, in certain countries, which in turn can be beneficial, not only beneficial to the uh, amount of accumulated greenhouse gases, uh, but in terms of future mortality because uh, of reduced mine-related uh, deaths as well. Especially hard hit will be the vulnerable populations. And it's difficult to, to, to categorize people in terms of vulnerable and invulnerable because these different conditions, as, we've, as I've discussed briefly, uh, hits various different segments of the population differently. Uh, but you do see that they're especially hard hit in the poor and less developed areas. Some of the extreme effects are in, in the continent of Africa and in the area of Southeast Asia, South and Southeast Asia. You can see in the country of Bangladesh, if sea rises a couple of um, uh, or tens of meters, they're going to have significant, not only uh, migration effects, but health effects as well. Um, these, these, the, the, the vulnerable populations may not be able to afford to move, and therefore they're stuck and further exposed to, to sea level changes, conflicts, droughts, some of the things that um, the Ghostbusters referred to. 
um, the uh, mitigation to prevent or minimize losses in advance in terms of health infrastructure, um, which is a significant effect on, on health, and adaptation. Uh, it was one of the prime examples of ad adaptation to climate change is an increase in the usage of air conditioning, therefore reducing the number of deaths for, for heat stress. Unfortunately, as you increase the number of air conditioners, unless they're solar powered, what you'd get is adverse effects in terms of increased carbon emissions, which increases the accumulated carbon emissions in the atmosphere, which is, has a negative effect on future weather. So it's, a, it's an adverse cycle. In terms of areas that actuaries are involved with, the insured and the pension areas, uh, since at least up to date, in, until uh, inclusive insurance gets a hold in, in many parts of the world, tend to be upper and middle income individuals and, and, and well, more well-developed economies. Uh, these are not as greatly affected as the vulnerable areas in the world. Although, uh, res but all, on the other hand, on, as, although residences and workplaces may be better constructed, it's really tough to, to, uh, to mitigate yourself or adapt to things like flooding. Um, insurance can help in this area, uh, and I look forward to actuarial and, uh, um, practices that may reduce the effect of that. In terms of quantitative analysis, studying this, projecting the effect is challenging. There's a great deal of uncertainty, as I'll mention in the next presentation. Um, the effects can be volatile. Um, stochastic analysis is useful in some areas, uh, but probably the best uh, approach, at least to date, is shown by scenario analysis and stress testing on the effects of the institutions being studied. So for capital assessment, for solvency, for sustainability analysis, uh, scenarios are, 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 at least currently, maybe the best approach to take. Let me move to the next last topic. That's social discounting. What social discounting? What does that mean? I'll be covering the project, the uh, discounting itself, uh, social discounting and climate change, covering intergenerational equity, which we've talked about several times already, uh, the structure and, and a topic close to my heart, which is real options. Project. This is a project that um, I'm working on personally. Uh, it's funded by the Society of Actuaries. There's been recently established project, uh, project oversight group, and it's a work in project pro progress. Um, I'm only up to 50 pages, and I'm not, uh, I'm not complete. Um, this is a, as, as anybody that's been involved with discounting knows, uh, it's a complex uh, but actually interesting and exciting area. Discounting. One of my favorite topics. It's, uh, it was covered in the, the banking uh, session yesterday. For those who attended, I think I saw the, uh, the presenter here earlier as, as we walked in. Um, it's it's a, a classic example of a non-objective issue. But it's a very important issue in method, methodology of analysis of climate change as well as every other thing. The IAA's book, which I sponsored, which was um, prepared a couple of years ago, entitled Discount Rates. That was very imaginative, of course. Um, 
identified three purposes of discounting. Um, first, rec it recognizes the time value of money. It reflects uh, or provides for risk in projected future asset cash flows or reflects the opportunity cost of holding an asset. And maybe we'll get into some others in, in the next couple of minutes. There's at least two perspectives that can be taken in terms of the discounting issue. First, relating to consumption, which is probably something that's a little more appropriate in this case, in the case of social discounting, which I'll define in a moment. Um, a, a rate at which society is willing to substitute consumption in the future for consumption today. In the investment side, which actuaries typically have been involved with, is the rate at which equates the need to invest less than a dollar today to obtain a dollar of benefits in the future. Now, it's, they sound pretty similar, but we're dealing with different issues. Consumption, that's people's consumption, versus a fin finance effect. Different bases are possible. I mean, as, as, as I heard yesterday, there's there's a, wide, a pretty wide range of approaches that can be taken discounting. And in fact, uh, I've learned that over the uh, several decades of, of studying this issue. Uh, but in any cost-benefit analysis, which, will be, which is uh, fundamental to uh, climate change analysis, uh, it is a key element. And matter of fact, some people have expressed the view that it is the most important element in the analysis. Both the effects of time and uncertainty are involved here. Social discounting. It's the application of the value of time to the quantitative assessment of social issues. Pretty straightforward so far. It there is a contrast, as I briefly mentioned, be between two types of applications. First is the market discount rate, which, which we are, as actuaries are used to, to dealing with. Uh, it reflects the preferences of market conditions. You can measure it by the implied uh, value of, of prices for financial instruments or some other types of, of goods and services. Uh, and it's, it's pretty tangible, uh, even though there's a wide range of, of assessed values, though. The social discount, is, discount rate is a parameter that measures the importance of the welfare of future generations to the current one. This ties in together the, 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 the previous discussion uh, of sustainability. And it's very important to, to understand that it is uh, based on the perspective of the particular policymaker. You'll see, I, I, I've asked kids in school about values of dollar or, or rand, whatever currency, in terms of the value a year from now of a good versus a value today. You get really wide varieties of views. And I, my favorite one was when I was talking to um, my daughter's class when she was in fourth grade. I asked the question of, well, a, a dollar a year from now has got to be worth less than the dollar today. And they said, no, that's the opposite. Why? Because I can get free dollars from my parents right now, and I don't know what, what, it's con what I'm going to have in the future. So you've got to realize that discount rates are a very different meaning amongst different people.
well, why shouldn't market rates be used? Why shouldn't, the, whether it be cost of capital, uh, the weighted average uh, return, well, you name it in terms of the, the financial theory of, of discount rates, why shouldn't you use that? Well, it's basically because of the imperfections in the marketplace relative to the purpose of the application, of this application. Um, market prices don't include costs to society of the goods or the financial instruments in question. Right? The, the people involved in transactions are only interested in the cost associated and the benefits associated with what they're, they're trading. Well, this is, this is a social cost that's, that doesn't involve, that's not, a, that not directly involved in that process, what's being traded. Second is it's a shorter, the market, market rates typically are a shorter term focus. As we'll see, that's like in, whether it be a short term rate of 30 days or 10 years is the typical government time period. We're dealing with decades and centuries, longer than most actuarial applications. It also involves an irreversible environmental damage. Once we get greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, it's, it's not something that you can just take out. I mean, there is potential sequestration techniques, but right now they're very expensive. And it doesn't include non-financial costs, in which I'll get into in a couple minutes. Uh, I won't add to whether the market is irrational or not, uh, but there's certainly things like herd mentality, which you would, you would normally follow in, in the marketplace. Why is this important? Well, in long-term cost-benefit analysis, the choice of discount rates, as I mentioned, can be one of the key areas of dispute. I've seen there are hundreds, if not thousands, of papers on this topic. Has anybody read any of them? No, they're all in economic journals. They're occasional report, the most famous of which was about a decade ago, uh, or nine years ago, the Stern Review in the United Kingdom is, is, is a focus point. In the year after that report came out from the UK government, uh, there were tens and hundreds of papers, but it's, they, none of them were covered in actual literature. But discount rates of 200 years, I just put a couple of examples. If you use a 1% discount rate, you, you, you discount a, 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 a currency unit by uh, 13%. If you use 2%, it goes down to 2% of the, of the nominal value. If you use a 4%, it's 400, the 400s of a percent. So just between 1%, and when you get into the 6 and 8%, which is the values that were used several, a, a decade ago, you can discount things that, that are almost meaningless in terms of its current value. Um, there's a recent study that was done last year um, that the range, this is a, a, a survey of economists who have written on the subject, there's a, a range of 0 to 10%, with 92% of those surveyed being comfortable within the 1% to 4% range, but the mean was 2% social discount rate. 
Well, to, to, uh, um, to assess the current value of costs of mitigation, that's the objective. Uh, carbon uh, uh, greenhouse gases remain in the atmosphere for centuries uh, unless we get sequestration to a reasonable cost. Uh, therefore, we do need values in this time frame. There are certain emissions that are shorter, maybe more intense like methane, that won't, won't have such an effect. Uh, but that's a, a challenge as well to, to be able to assess these on a consistent basis. In the, this is just a very simple diagram. You start from greenhouse gases, you accumulate in the atmosphere, you take some mitigation activities, hopefully before that happens, you end up in a, a, a warmer, more volatile weather, weather climate. Uh, you, you have to adapt to that. It leads to a set of economic damages and basically we include time and risk preferences to get an estimated value in present value terms. What we're talking about in social discount rates is this little box. This brings up the question of intergenerational equity. It's a concern because climate change will affect many generations. Uh, in addition to the usual problems of intragenerational equity. The question is in current decision-making how to fairly weight the irreversible of costs of our actions today and our actions yesterday and in the near future associated with climate change. The way that it's generally been done in the economics literature is something called the, the Ramsey formula. This is a, a very famous formula going back to the 1920s by uh, one of the, uh, uh, the 1928, and I won't go into this very much in depth, but this is something that, that actuaries can be, should be much more familiar with, uh, because at least in, in a, several talks that I've given on this topic, there's almost no actuaries who are familiar with this, which is central to most economic analysis of intergenerational, intergenerational equity. The, the little formula is the social discount rate equals the peer rate of time preference plus a second factor, which is the elasticity of marginal utility times the growth rate and rate of consumption. In macroeconomic terms, the consumption rate of interest is the rate at which society would substitute consumption in the future year for consumption in the present, which is the definition that I started off with. The first term, pure time preference, is something that uh, is highly controversial that there is some, for example, uh, Lord Stern in his report and afterwards termed in the context, is in the context of an ethical and moral issue. You shouldn't put the next generation in a worse position compared with the current condition. And in, in, in at least one country says you should not use anything other than a 0% pure discount rate. This is kind of interesting and shocking to some actuaries uh, when you discuss a 0% discount rate. Of course, in today's world, maybe that's not so shocking. Uh, but so, so that goes. Um, the second term is the growth factor. In other words, it represents the expected extent that the future will be better off than the present. If the next generation or the second or third generation is going to be 10 times richer than the current generation, why should we spend money so that, that, that they, can better, they will be able to better afford it's an interesting issue, which I don't have time to give you a solution to. Of course, there is no solution, but that's okay. Uh, but all this doesn't take into account uncertainty, which is a significant factor. Um, 
and I'll go into this very briefly since, since I only have a couple minutes and want to leave time for some questions. Um, there is a number of areas in, in climate change analysis which, is, uh, which involves uncertainty, whether from emissions, the natural offsets, the effect of agriculture, um, uh, costs of mitigation, and indeed the discount rate. Environmental decisions should be considered, should consider uncertainty, and it's a fundamental aspect of actuarial theory as well. Uh, there's two aspects, two approaches. One is uh, to increase uh, expected cash flows or to reduce the discount rates. And typically in this area, it's the latter that's chosen. Uh, it's generally characterized by a declining set of discount rates. That is, the uncertainty is much greater in 10 years and in 100 years rather than today. And therefore, the discount rate is is typically, at least in, in the most recent literature, a setting of the discount rate. Uh, and I go won't go into the formula, which is the adjustment to the classic Ramsey formula. The last, or the stru structure is just I mentioned, what's been used by current governments, the United States government, at least they, today, requires alternative analysis based on 3%, 3.5%, and 5%. These are uh, developed in terms of to derive an alternative range because no one, at least in the U.S. view right now, no one knows what is the best or there's a unique discount rate. U.K. starts with 3.5% declining to 1% after 300 years. So there's, there is some timely or lack of timely analysis. It, it's important to recognize who the users of the cost-benefit or is the viewpoint. Um, I think I've, uh, I'll think I've covered all of that, so I'll t cover briefly the last topic, which is real options. The definition of a real option is the right but not the obligation to undertake an initiative such as uh, we're talking about right now. In terms of we can spend uh, a billion dollars today or we can defer this and spend two billion dollars in ten years. What's your choice? Um, well, the policymaker has to make a decision uh, to act or to, to defer, rather to procrastinate action um, is something that's significant, but there are factors involved in the, that in this analysis, and this is key to any decision. You'll, we will have new information. We'll have more, hopefully, resources available, uh, and we may have new technologies. How do you factor in those decisions and whether to spend it now? Before the Stern report, the, the common approach was to say, well, we'll ramp up our, our uh, investment in mitigation over the years, and in maybe 10 or 20 years from now, when it becomes a little more serious, we'll have more information, improved technology, uh, we'll be able to make a decision. And But the Stern, Stern report came out saying, well, with a lot lower discount rate, society is stuck. Social discount rates, he concluded, was a total of 1.4%, where other people were previously using 4, 6, 8%. There's, there's an other number of, of issues to be addressed. Uh, fundamentally, though, the, the, the allocation of such large resources for this issue is a political issue. It involves the allocation of resources between developed and undeveloped or developing countries between the well-off and the vulnerable, between generations, just by this list of conflicting views, we, you can see that this is a really naughty issue. Um, it's unsurprisingly, though, those who advocate immediate action 
tend to use a lower social discount rate. Those who advocate limited or deferred action because they prefer to focus on, on jobs and the economy, current needs, current consumption, they'll use a higher social discount rate. The question is, can a single approach equally apply to this issue? Can we get a, a closer assessment? I think actuaries have a role to play in this discussion. They've basically been out of the discussion because it's been treated as an economics discussion. I think our, our experience with app, different applications of discount rates might be able to contribute to social discussions of this and other aspects of climate change. Thank you very much. Thank you to all three um, speakers. I think we, I started with my word unknowable, um, which maybe is linked to unmeasurable, but I think you've given us a sense um, between all three of your talks that things that perhaps are unmeasurable can be measured, but we need to be quite cautious if we get too caught up in, in measuring things that are actually unmeasurable and unknowable. So, um, so thank you for that. But I think we have a few minutes for some questions, so I'm very anxious to allow some speakers from the floor. We've got some microphones. So is there anyone who has a question or comment? Hello. Uh, um, just on, let's say, Rob's uh, point that the environment would actually do quite well without us, <laughs> but we obviously need the biosphere, and Taryn's you know, subject on sustainability, has there, has there ever been any work done on you know, sort of like the continual population growth? And because if you look at the way the world's developed, I think in the 1900s, the population was like 1.6 billion now it's you know, 7.4, it's going up to you know, over 10 billion by like 20, 2,100 or whatever the number is. I mean, that's an astronomical rate of growth you know, in 200 years. If you're talking about these discount rates for two, 300 years, that's like a 700% population growth. And if you look at a lot of the energy where you know, humans invest their energy is self-preservation. So healthcare, everybody's living longer. Um, being, bringing people over the bread line, getting rid of poverty is obviously good for the human race but at the same time increases overall consumption. So, you know, even if you just have two kids and you say, hey, I'm just replacing myself and my wife, actually you're not because there's like three generations of people that are alive at the same time now because people are not dying at 30, you know, they're living till 100. So how does that impact all of this? Because it just feels like if you're doubling your population in like 100 years, whatever you do on the other side is kind of minuscule with a you know, Paris climate change uh, agreement. We just need a mic at the front for the speakers, please. Maybe we can take another uh, comment or question from the floor. Oh, did those work? Oh, no, Mike's okay. coming through. Okay, Rob, yeah. Yes, uh, this is uh, addressed by that, uh, the Ehrlich identity that I showed, uh, that it depends on the, the population, the, uh, the, the um, uh, uh, gross national product per head of uh, per capita, and the technology improvements. So, population is certainly 
an important part of that equation um, uh, and needs to be addressed. I, I, haven't, I didn't really deal with that. Um, but the, it's, a, it's a very um, uh, big issue whether you, whether and how you address that. I mean, most of the thinking is that um, education of girl children is, is substantially important. Um, the incentive to, to have a large family for economic purposes is another um, focus. So there are various policy issues that, that we can, be, can be used on population without going to the extent of China's uh, uh, recent um, method of, of doing that. No? Okay, this is a, a really significant issue. It, in my mind, it, it boils down to a, a fertility issue, though, uh, because you know, there's not much we can do about the current population. Improving mortality is going to uh, increase the population or resource burden of the, of the world. Um, but I, I personally think it's, it's, uh, we have a very favorable trend in many developed countries where you've almost got the reverse concern. In, in certain developed countries where, where we've got a, a fertility rate of like 1.2 to 1.5. So, so I think that, that, that there's at least a semblance of control that has been placed, but we still have huge intergenerational is equity issues. I guess it highlights the role for actuaries in modeling because that's, that's I mean, those are complex matters to bring together and, and, and models to, to assess. Yeah, I've, been a, I've been a student of fertility uh, and demographic factors uh, for tw 25 years, and, and uh, it, it just differs by culture, by country, and so the same issues are not at all. It's, yeah. This is not a universal question, but I think each country has to, has to uh, uh, tackle this and address these issues. Could we time for another one? If there's any, oh, and this, if you can, the mic there and here. Is it my turn? Yes, go ahead. Hello, Karl Diedrichs from uh, MMI. Thank you for very interesting presentations. I agree with statements made. Uh, two comments. The first one is just on your recent uh, remarks uh, around the, uh, uh, the fertility rates. I do think, uh, and it ties in with uh, Rob's comment about the world's Gini coefficient, I do think we as uh, humans need to actually start getting out of our um, silos regarding different countries because you get countries with high fertility rates and then the um, proverbial neighbors um, have low levels uh, and then some way they almost use um, their migration law to cherry pick and actually enhance or increase the world's Gini coefficient. So that's just a comment. Um, for me, I think this, uh, these presentations leads me to a, um, a next topic, which is the common ground between, let's say, the school of thought that we should uh, defer investment and, and the other school of thought that say we need to take action now. I do believe there is common ground. Um, an example would be 
and, and Rob also alluded to that, is family planning, investing in that, because it uh, basically achieves both. Uh, it enhances, it's investing in the current um, generation as well as uh, the coming one. So it might be interesting to have a topic around what are the common grounds, and then it's a no-brainer that we need to actually invest in those areas. Yeah, thanks, Carol. Should we take another comment and then you can respond? Was there another one over here? No. Hi, uh, Soshin Subramani from Old Mutual. Uh, thank you very much for the presentation. It's really, really interesting, and I'm quite proud that the actuarial profession is taking uh, you know, a keen interest and active role in this area. Um, my question is around influencing um, asset managers uh, and the question of uh, how valuable or how uh, outperforming are uh, socially responsible investments, or not, not just socially responsible investments, but sustainable investments in general. Um, I hear sustainability experts say things like it's an urban myth that you have to sacrifice your, uh, you know, some short-term return for the long-term, you know, um, and that, and that in reality, uh, investments made made through an ESG lens uh, will indeed outperform in the long run. But um, but I also talk to colleagues of mine who are who are you know experts in the investments industry, and and there seems to be uh, quite a different, perhaps even cynical view of of that. Uh, and so I'm quite interested in in hearing the the views of the panel on. Do we, you know, is there something that I can read up on to understand whether um, responsible investments really do outperform uh, investments that don't necessarily focus, uh, you know, on ESG criteria, for example? Thanks, Sushma. I think if you all can maybe just make a comment just to wrap things up, because unfortunately we're out Shall of we time. Shall we each make a comment? Please. Um, yes, uh, I've just been reading um, Charles Eisenstein's Sacred Economics. And he's arguing that uh, we should have negative interest rates because we should be using the capital for the sake of the environment and, and society. Uh, so we pay people to, keep our, to, to invest our money for us, and we don't expect to, to get the full amount back at the end. Um, that's the one extreme. Um, I don't actually agree with him, but I find his book very interesting. Um, but uh, I, I, there have been a number of of uh, articles both ways, showing some, um, some companies' returns are enhanced by, high, uh, by a major concern about social and respons socially responsible investment and others that show the reverse. Um, I think the, the effect is, is channeled through the governance process because good um, social and environmental management is good management, it's good governance. So I th think you, it's a proxy for good governance very often. Um, but um, I also understand the cynicism of investment managers when they look at the socially responsible investment index in South Africa and see Cecil and Mondi and places there like uh, outfits like that that are that are, I mean, Cecil is um, using 12% of our electricity. Um, and Mondi owns uh, uh, exotic plantations about the size of the Kruger National Park. Um, so, you know, they, they measure these, they measure their social, they get into the SRI index, but they shouldn't be there because the things they're measuring are wrong. 
Um, and that's what we're trying to fix. Any other questions? So on, on the measurement, I think currently with SRI, um, I don't know if you can actually hear me. I think with the current approach, I mean, there's negative screening, there's positive screening, and it's very much like a tick box approach that's currently used with the SRI index, like Rob said. Um, but through measuring sustainability, it actually becomes easier to compare uh, from an investment decision-making perspective who would you want to invest in. But the, I don't think there's a long enough time period to actually assess whether there's outperformance or underperformance um, because... I mean, a lot of the investment that it has done is very short-termist view. So I think that with time, because sustainability is a long-term uh, view and a long-term investment decision that you're making for that investment, that through time um, you'd be able to determine whether it's outperforming or not. I think this is going to be an increasingly important area uh, with the Financial Stability Board's report that's uh, coming up sometime in the next six months. I think that'll uh, develop a further discussion. There are lawsuits in this area right now and some energy companies. Uh, and I think my, my own, uh, my own um, assessment is that disclosure is really important to get some co more common measures so that we can develop over time, as, as uh, Terrence which just mentioned, uh, that we need to, to uh, I, investors, whether it be uh, insurance companies, uh, uh, asset managers, uh, individuals, uh, can make their own decisions. Uh, and based on their own values and assessment of, of alternative returns. But, but I think overall actuaries has a, have a role to play in this area as well as just investment uh, professionals. Uh, and I think we can uh, move to try to identify scenarios uh, that can be utilized and can enhance that value and information. Thanks. Well, it remains for me just to say thank you very much to the speakers. It seems like we have a lot of work to do, and so I hope that uh, some thoughts and ideas have been stimulated by the presentations today. Thank you very much. Before you rush off to lunch, I have a few housekeeping announcements. Please keep an eye on the app. It's a good way to see changes in terms of the program because there's a few changes um, this afternoon. The, uh, the venue after, well, after lunch, the, the life insurance and financial wellness and debt uh, presentation. Um, there's, that'll be taking place in Auditorium 1, and the presenters are Nico, Louis Mini, Ina Shaw, and Johan van Tonda. And then um, the session after that, 3 to 4, the professional matters and curious conversations. The lead speaker will be Andrew Warren, and that's also in Auditorium 1. But there's some changes for tomorrow as well, so please um, keep your eye on the app. Thanks, and have a good lunch. Thanks, ah, thank you.